Welcome to the Afterlife Files, where we investigate near-death experiences, shared death experiences, and how they affect you. Unlike podcasts that are just stories, we will give you a heads up on what to look for in our conversation. And then, after the interview, stick around, we'll help you make sense of those accounts so that you can incorporate the insights into your life. I think you'll find that once having your most profound questions answered, living life in the physical is filled with more peace and joy. Kimberly Clark Sharp has a very special place in NDE research literature. And you will also quickly see that she has a wonderful sense of humor. Kimberly's NDE helps illustrate that God reciprocates in an equally playful way. It's usual for people to ask questions during their NDE and get those questions answered. However, it is highly unusual for experiencers to remember the answers upon returning to the physical world. The insights Kimberly receives for why are we born and what about pain and suffering will having you think anew about the nature of the universe and our role in it. I found it fascinating our conversation about the role of coincidence and how, if we are aware, we can see synchronicities and humor to guide us. Listen to the many ways Kimberly has led to the opportunities in her life. Lastly, Kimberly Clark Sharp is the owner of one of the most famous stories in NDE lore, that of the blue tennis shoe on the ledge. She tells the entire story about 45 minutes into the interview, so don't leave early. So let's get going. Here's our interview. We are so lucky to have Kimberly Clark Sharp with us today. Let me read you her bio. It's great. Kimberly Clark Sharp is recognized for her work in two areas, near-death experiences and social work. So first, let's talk about near-death experiences. She is an experiencer and author of After the Light, The Spiritual Path to Purpose. Recognized for its importance, her book was named by the Literary Guild of the U.S. and Canada as an alternative book of the month. Congratulations, Kimberly. You, Thank you. You did great on that one. That's yeah, a great honor. Yeah, and a paycheck, so it works win-win. Forty years ago, she founded the world's oldest support group for near-death experiencers, the Seattle International Association for Near-Death Studies. Short is Seattle IANS. Kimberly is a tireless supporter of National IANS, which is where I met her. She is an international conference and workshop speaker, having been published in many journal articles, textbooks, and magazines. With this extensive background, Kimberly is a sought after consultant to news and entertainment industry, most recently, Netflix. Surviving Death, episode number one on near-death experiences. In the world of social work, she has an equally breakthrough resume. 
Kimberly graduated with her Master of Social Work from the University of Washington. She went on to be a pioneer in the field of critical care social work. Kimberly is founder of the Department of Social Work at the world's first bone marrow transplant center. She is retired faculty from the University of Washington where Kimberly was a clinical assistant professor in the School of Social Work and co-instructor at their terminal illness seminar. Welcome, Kimberly. There seems to be a lot of death and dying in your life, and I know you as one of the most joyous people on the planet, so how did that happen? Probably because there's a lot of death and dying in my life. I I have to give, though, a shout out to my gene code. You know, I I come from funny stock and um, our family reunions are the most annoying gatherings. You could, everyone's competing for the last line of a good joke. So, Uh uh, you know, I I do have to acknowledge that. I also have to acknowledge my own near-death experience because uh, been dead, loving it. But I am not one of those near-death experiencers, though. That, <clears throat> and there are plenty who say, you know, I and mean it. You know, I just can't wait to get back, and and oh, life is hard, and all that. I I support them and that attitude, and that's fine. But I have what there is an acronym for among the younger set called FOMO, F-O-M-O, fear of missing out. Mm -hmm. So another reason for my joyous attitude, as you said, is that I'm really interested in life. I mean, I really like what's going on here. I think it's wonderful. I really, really do. I like food that tastes good. I like spring in Seattle where I live. I like rain in Seattle where I live. I like you. I like travel. I mean, I just, I like information. What's not to be happy about? In the balance, I have physically suffered. I have been challenged multiple times with um, challenging physical problems. Uh When people say, I wish I could have a near-death experience, it's like, cut out your tongue. No, 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 (laughs) no. Yeah, because it does involve, I don't know, dying, and the body takes a hit. And so I fall into the category of many near-death experiences who are just fragile after the event, but healthy at this point. And then my other reason to be joyful is... Uh, bottom line, I, I know I'm loved. I know that from my NDE. I have that knowledge of unconditional love. And I'm, I think because I've had such a big infusion of that, because I was steeped like a tea bag in this light during my NDE, that it just kind of comes out of me when I, I don't try. I just love people. And, and fortunately, um, 
I am loved. I have, you know, a long-term, only one husband relationship. He loves me. Kids love me. Neighbors love me. So I'm, I'm pretty much in a good mood frequently. How's that? I love that answer. Thank you. So let's go back to the beginning then. You um, said that some of this starts with your NDE. Um, tell us your story. Well, thanks for asking. Um, this happened in 1970 in Kansas. So times two, there was no information about what we now call the near-death experience. Um, I was a perfectly healthy person with my dad at the Shawnee Mission Department of Motor Vehicles, failing to get a license. And I failed parallel parking. That becomes key, actually, in my near-death experience. That was a foretelling. So was the whole thing. I didn't I know God. I can't wait for the segue on this one. <laughs> yeah, well, when I, when I say God, by the way, I don't mean that in a religious sense or in a gender sense, uh, just to get that out of the way. But I had not yet discovered how funny God is. So there were things that were in place for a sarcastic creator to enjoy. One would be, I flunk parallel parking, I'll get to that, um, that... Uh, I, I had a sign here, and, and, and according to my dad, apparently the clerk said, oh, you're signing your life away. I, it was just all kinds of little things like that that I don't remember. So I have to tell you what my dad's memory is because it sets the stage. So um, I left the DMV building with my father. Having said already, I felt funny and wanted to sit down, and I was told there weren't any chairs. But then I did sign everything appropriately at the DMV, but did flunk the parallel parking thing. We were leaving the building, and I collapsed. Um, my body fell into and through my dad's arms and wound up outside of the building on a sidewalk where a uniformed nurse happened to be passing by. This is a Saturday late morning. Um, but anyway, she came over, determined I didn't have a pulse, uh, didn't seem to be breathing. Um, this is just before 911. So two calls were made, one to the Shawnee Mission Department of Volunteer Firefighters and one to St. Luke's Hospital. I have names for everything, by the way. I don't, nothing's a secret in my life. Um, Shawnee Mission uh, was about 20 to 30 minutes by ambulance right away from St. Luke's. So fire department arrived first. They had a brand new portable ventilator. It had two fabulous features, one to ventilate, but also one to, uh, like a vacuum mode to extract anything blocking the airway, which is why we tell our children don't run with candy, you know, whatever. So according to my dad, it was a new packaging. They opened it up, they applied it, turned it on, and it was on vacuum mode. So whatever oxygen happened to be left in my body 
was I had the life sucked out of me. How's that, Scott? That's oh, oh. it's just that, one funny tragic. thing after another. I mean, it's just kind of a joke, but it wasn't a joke to my dad, who's remained traumatized, even though I recovered. Um, so uh, they knew immediately that this was a problem and they figured out it was the switch. So they reversed everything, but our lungs are sticky and moist. So when they, the lung tissue comes in contact with itself, it's, it needs to be reopened in a steady controlled atmosphere like an intensive care unit on a ventilator that wasn't available. So this big blast of air went into my body, my lungs, had come into enough contact with themselves to not be able to accept all this air. It had to go somewhere and it went out to my skin and I literally blew up like a flesh balloon. It's called epithelial emphysema, usually wow. fatal, especially outside, not in a hospital and not in today's terms, but it was bad. So, um, to this day, only physicians can declare a death, but there's uh, hint, hints. And I'm married to a paramedic, so I know, I know the other words. Uh, and it's things like, my dad heard, I'm sorry, there's nothing more we can do. Words to that effect. Behind now, quite the crowd, um, a stranger came forward and uh, just pushed everyone aside. According to my dad, again, plucked the firefighters off me and put his mouth against mine and started what we now call citizen CPR. By the way, one does not need to do mouth to mouth any longer, just chest compressions to the song Staying Alive, end parenthesis. Anyway, he was a swearing man and um, turned to my dad finally and said, I'm not getting a blankety blank blank thing. My dad's memory ends there until somehow the ambulance arrived from St. Luke's. Uh, I was breathing on my own. Body was thrown in the back of the vehicle. My dad jumped in, off we went. Things went sour again in the emergency room. And at this point, I really hate to give away the ending of a good book. And I wrote a good book, but she lived. But <laughs> It's I promise not to tell anybody. Don't, don't give away the ending. So that is not my memory bank. My memory is first hearing a woman's voice to my left, kind of like left and above me saying, I'm not getting a pulse. I'm not getting a pulse. And I could hear her just fine. And what felt like normal speech, I said, basically, of course, you're getting a pulse. Otherwise, I wouldn't be talking. Well, this went on for a while, and I was so ignored. So I thought, what is this? A, you know, I'm out of here then. I had like a near-death snit, is what I often say. I just, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I found myself. So somehow letting go is in there. It's in the mix. That's a teaching point, but I, I don't know in what capacity, but I know letting go is important. And I found myself in a completely different environment, um, surrounded by dense fog. I knew I wasn't alone, but because of the fog, I couldn't see anything. 
And I have to do, uh, I also teach on the subject, so I'm interrupting myself again to say, I have since learned that I love old movies and I love the subject of afterlife and all that, that during World War II, when the world was in tremendous danger, there were more movies made about the afterlife than any other time in cinema history, which isn't all that long, a hundred years, but every film, no matter from India, Japan, Britain, United States, that I have seen includes foggy material. So Scott, honestly, I think there's a collective consciousness about that. But somehow something archaic within its nose about this foggy place. Again, in parenthesis. I'm thinking so, of uh, yeah. Harry Potter. When Harry Potter had his, um, his near-death experience in the last film, it was, it was in a foggy scene. And, you know, and he winds up walking out into the train station. But I, it, th oh, that yeah. metaphor continues. I thank you for that because I forgot. I'll look at it again. Yeah, but I'm on to something there. I don't know what it is, but I'm on to something. Anyway, I uh, felt like I was waiting for something um, with great confidence. Uh, my metaphor is that I was at the gate at the airport, had my boarding pass, just waiting for my aisle to be called, that kind of comfort. And then my aisle was called, so to speak, blasting under me with a dynamism and a force and energy that I cannot communicate fully was a light. And in all of my tellings over the years, I have not nailed this at all. It is so precious. It is so amazing. This light, though, was brighter than a million suns. Not like I've even looked at one sun with my eyes, but if there were a million, that'd go, oh, this might be it. Um, it blasted up under me. It blew away all the foggy stuff. Um, it was nothing but love, personal. It was like directed at me, I was loved and that important and precious and adored as we all are. This wasn't the Kim show. This is the human show. I know it. Mm -hmm. And the light went out in all directions and I could see like I had eyeballs and I either was given the knowledge or somehow knew that I was beholding eternity because the light just went on and on and on forever in all directions. But at the same time, it was layering endlessly on itself, on itself. And I thought somehow I knew that I was beholding dimensions, which are also endless. It's complicated out there. There's a lot going on outside of um, me sitting here. It's astonishing and amazing and lovely and wonderful. And 
the first thing I said was verbal, I thought. Turned out it wasn't, but I said homey home. Homey home? Homey home. I learned from my parents later, upon recovery, that homey home was what I used to say when I was learning language. And we've been away from our house or pulling back into the neighborhood. And I would recognize neighborhood landmarks and go, homie home, homie home. And I was the oldest, so everything got recorded and remembered. It's one of those bougie, bougie boo moments. I have no memory of saying that. But that is what I remember saying in the presence of this light, because I was. And uh, the communication, though, was not English or verbal, as it turns out. It was a combination of math and music. And I have to really? put parentheses in here because the study of the brain is clipping along since that time. And we now, we, like I'm you know, a neuroscientist, but one understands now that um, the brain does not know the difference between math and music until around age 10. So conventional wisdom is expose your children or grandchildren to music before that window closes and their math skills will be ever so much easier to solve. I miss that memo. I have no skills in music or math, I promise. And I mean, even at church, I'm asked to lip sync. It's bad, Scott. Oh, that's so sad. It is. Oh my gosh. I, I had a piano teacher quit me in the seventh grade during Song of the Volga Boatman. Just nothing. Don't even ask about math. So, um, but yeah, this communication was flawless. It was perfect. So there you go. And then I got to ask questions. Any fool would ask, like, well, why are we born? And to that, I can't quote math and music well, but my understanding is that we begged for it. We even maybe calculated for it. I do personally think that we do choose. Um, I don't understand it, but that um, we might choose, you know, our parents are year, day, time of birth, the alignment of the stars, the hemisphere, the whatever. I don't know what I'm talking about. My field is near-death experiences, but somehow I understood we really wanted to be born and have life experiences before us. Um, I asked about like pain and suffering and was, I thought, I got a flippant response about well, that's the fastest path back to our spiritual awareness, you know, and it would be through a prayer, basically, where we communicate um, a need. And I, I don't buy it because uh, there's a lot of pain and suffering in the world. I've been exposed to it. And I don't, I don't know. I don't get that. I leave that to God. On it went. And then I heard the worst thing possible, which is that I had to go back. And uh, I'm a whiner. And so I, you know, pulled out that tool and uh, argued. And God said, no. And I said, yes, it was, that's my memory of a kind of a volley. Well, on earth, we do have free will. That is my experience. But off of earth, 
it's not our playground. And so God said, you'll go back. And by golly, I was back, except for one little detail. I missed my body by about six feet. And that's what <laughs> I did parallel parking. I could not get within six feet of that darn curb. And to this day, I cannot. I don't have a lot of skill sets in this life. We've covered math, music, spatial <laughs> dimensions when I'm in a vehicle or in my body. So I miss my body. And that's what I had this profound spiritual experience. And it was like, I can't even park myself. And I remember thinking, <laughs> then I saw someone through legs and such that I didn't recognize bend over me and he put his mouth on that body, which also is very important to note that wasn't me. That body was the me that was me was looking at that physical body. Again, where are my eyeballs? They were in the body. What am I doing seeing anything? I don't know. But uh, it was not me. All, all that I am was outside of my body. But when this man's mouth touched mine, I moved back. It was like a, a lighthouse kind of. I don't know how to explain it my bottom line is that he was acting out of compassion and that's a very high form of love. I just been with the greatest love of all. So of course I'm drawn back to another form of love. So I think it was a combination of the physical touch and his intent, his, his, even though he was swearing, uh, he also loved me a stranger so I'm back in my body, and then I don't like it at all. Um, my admitting body temperature to the hospital was 86, which is like oh a nice summer day, but really cold for a human body. Yeah. And I was, my consciousness was, there's a word that's fairly new to me, but anyway, my consciousness was running around my body, and it was dark and dank and terrifying and and horrible, horrible, horrible. So I, you know, I whined again, you know, anyone would and ask God, you know, hold me home, hold me home. So God showed up again, um, kindly and opened up like a window or a portal or something to my right. And there was my heaven. And it was a field or meadow or just an expanse of long green grass sort of blowing in a breeze with kind of a low whitish fencing area in the back and some low trees or whatever. And upon reflection, it looked like Kentucky, like a calendar of Kentucky. When skeptics say, oh, you get what you expect, I have yet to visit the great state of Kentucky. I've never been to Kentucky. So, but it did look like every Kentucky calendar I ever saw. So maybe that was the influence, I don't know. But the reason that it was weird is the colors. <laughs> it was green grass and it was blue sky, but it wasn't, it, it wasn't green it was green and it wasn't blue it was blue 
an intensity that is not on this earth. And it was beautiful and balmy and wonderful. And of course I wanted to go, are you kidding me? But then God said, wait, before you do that, let me show you something, big flash of light. And I was told that if I chose to live, I would be living in that location. And um, thanks God, no map, but it was where mountains meant water. So it wasn't Kansas. And also I didn't care. I'm off to Kentucky. So um, then I was another, and I was also told that if I went through that window though, that was my border, there would be no oh, coming okay. back. So yep. fine, exit stage right. I will take my vows on the stage of life and leave for the after party. So um, then there was another flash of light. And again, I was told, if you chose to live, if you choose to live, and I saw like a gallery of portraits and, and actually in my recollection, like English underneath, and it was all like pretty boring stuff, nothing fancy, but best friend, next door neighbor, colleague, blah, 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 and went. And these were people that I would be seriously interacting with on my path if I chose to live. They were strangers. So again, I'm going to go to heaven. Uh -huh. Then there was another flash. Like, what? And, um, you know, I, I think of God, people of a certain age will remember the TV show Columbo. And at the end of every episode, he would spin and go, oh, one more thing. And then nail, you know, the person. Yeah. Well, God watches Columbo. What can I say? Because it was like that. Yeah, just one more thing. And there was another flash of light. And I saw myself being of service to people, something I hadn't even given a thought to. And I said, cool. I thought it was an adjective. God thought it was a plan. <laughs> <laughs> and so we have a disagreement to this day about my choice. But I was sent back. And then I was good and sent back. I was back. And I recovered. And I went on to fulfill this destiny, which has been interesting because I have never applied for a job. I've never applied to graduate school. I've never done anything. I'm always in the right place at the right time. And then I get the work and the work within that job or educational experience is very hard. And we're not gonna diminish my own work to say that I haven't been a hard worker, I have been. But I have been in service and I am dedicated to that. And it's paid off. Um, and I mentioned uh, at the top of the program that I've had physical challenges, and I have. Buku, I, I'm, um, oive, including uh, breast cancer and uh, on and on, lots of things. But all of those challenges, 100% of the time, allow me to look at someone who is suffering or challenged, I can look them in the eye and say, I know how you feel. And people know when they're being fed a pile of poop. And so that sincerity has opened many, many doors of service.
happens to me. So I bless even the physical challenges I've had because it allows me to help other people. Ta-da! That's a great story. How cool to use a phrase. Um, I'm intrigued by that, uh, the concept of coincidence in your life that things just kind of happen. Um, result of your NDE? A thousand percent. Can we go more than a hundred? Absolutely everything is related to my near-death experience because everything in terms of my ability to perceive comes from there. And that perception is not only intuitive, but I've also been able, okay, here's where the program gets weird. We're about to potentially take a hard right or left. Um, Go for it. I'm all into it. Okay. Well, it seems that upon recovery, I could also perceive what I call invisibilities. And that would be dead people. Okay. uh, Ghosties. I call them um, in the form of orbs. I've got this amazing orb collection and I just saw my camera once I actually saw orbs at a Seattle Lions meeting. Um, what we call angels and what I call negative energy but anyone would call really scary stuff, religiously demons, whatever. But there are things that would like to scare us and uh, are often successful, but love is greater than fear. So always turn to love, always. It will best all of the scary stuff that is happening to us, I promise. I, I, again, I just know it. Anyway, so armed with these uh, new gifts, life became very crazy. And I want to underscore that because, uh, oh, but I have to say though, oh, when God really showed up with the humor though, was when I was leaving for what turned out to be Seattle, but I didn't know. You got time for another story? Oh yes, absolutely. All right. Um, And it's wonderful being with you, by the way, and whoever is listening. Thank you. Um, I bought a car. I did get a license, bought a car. I had a hamster named Toto. I kept Toto in a birdcage. He went in the front seat of my VW Squareback with four speeds. I did not know how to drive a stick. It was right up there with parallel parking. But off I went to my parents' shock and horror. And I didn't come from a, a background that was horrible. I came from a nice place. We were very financially comfortable. I I was loved. You know, it wasn't tragic. Um, But I had to get out of there. I had to literally get out of Dodge. Uh, Everything was, Kansas was suffocating me. I was suffocating me. Everything was so different. And I hated change. That's the other thing I don't do well. We're down to math, music parallel parking, and any kind of change. I'd already planned to marry a little boy I met in the seventh grade because his name was Robert Clark. My name was Kim Clark. 
So my plan was, I'm Mary Robert, and I don't even have to change the monograms on the towels. I had a <laughs> How convenient. That was great. <laughs> yeah, it was working out. And, and he was into it. I mean, this was a, not a fantasy. It was like working out. I left Robert Clark. I left everything. And I had never been away from home by myself other than in protected environment, like college, which wasn't far away, for instance. So I'm driving towards I-70. At that time, it's a toll booth in something between second and third gear. In the meantime, Toto's in a little ball going, help me, help me, because we're lurching along. And the weight of my decision bore down on me and I began to cry a lot. What, what, I mean, really, you know, the kind of cry that involves mucus. And oh. I decided- I can, that, I can picture this now, it's, it's yeah, now not that pretty. That in. Yeah, it was, a, it was a big ball. And um, I started to talk to God again and said, I changed my mind. I'm not doing this. I'm not going. I hate change. I hate change. Do you know me? I hate change. And then we lurched upon this sign approaching the toll booth that said, change needed. And I just thought, <laughs> oh, funny. Far, far. That was the first hint that I was aware of that I wasn't alone and whoever I was with was a stitch. So then it was, okay, well, but I need a Kleenex. Now I'm sure my mom did this. She doesn't remember, but I'm sure she did. Again, I'm Kimberly Clark. And uh, I looked down between Toto and myself, there was a white box, big black letters that said Kimberly Clark. And it was a box of Kleenex. So it's like, I have a prop here, like, oh, okay, <laughs> thank you. And off we went until I wound up. Uh, I had to take, so I have Toto in the car. I'm in Kansas. We have a, a small tornado outside of Hayes. I have to take shelter. That was eventful. Um, so there was the tornado. And I wound up in Seattle, uh, lots of detours, but then as now Seattle is called the Emerald City. So mm -hmm. I am Dorothy, again, just the synchronicities. If, if one is aware and we can all achieve that level of awareness, we can see synchronicities and humor and all that. So, but I'm Dorothy if Dorothy had decided to stay in Oz rather than go back to Kansas. I didn't click my heels three times, but I do have a wonderful wardrobe of red shoes, I might add. Thank you for that. I, I'm picturing it I in my mind right now. And red shoes. I mean, it's the complete package. <laughs> oh, my. So you took off cross country. You wind up in, in Seattle and... And I, I'm assuming then you get you got a job there that was, or what what actually drew you to Seattle other than it was um, where the tornado blew you and your yeah, little red I, shoes. I didn't know where I was headed, uh, but that tornado. I did take shelter with a college friend, Mary Sue Bolick. These people, you know, exist, and she got in the car with me, and I became uh, aware of 
an invisible presence in the car that was so involved with our trip that at one point in Utah, I could turn to Mary Sue and make a peanut butter sandwich and not touch the steering wheel and still drive perfectly straight because I felt like the car was capable of being driven by this entity. And we just, you know, every place I landed, it was, I was looking for more mountains, mount water. So the first place was Denver. Every stop involved a celebrity, which was fun and interesting. So I was being cued like, oh, you know, dangle uh, the Righteous Brothers under her nose, which did happen too. But I, it went from Denver to top of the Berthoud Pass, Colorado, and then Salt Lake, and then um, Oakland, then San Francisco, where I actually stayed for a while. There was, that was pretty good. Again, 1970, the hippie culture was perfect for me. It was all about love and peace. And I was already high. You know, I got an invisible presence with me. <laughs> what more does one need? So, um, but it was ironic because for a while I lived on Hate Street. Really? Right in the middle of the action. But I was thinking, I'm so filled with love. How ironic I live on hate. You know, it was just, the jokes just kept on coming. But everything, every stop, I knew it wasn't right. And um, until I got to Seattle and I drove across the city lines and there was a big billboard because it was a Boeing bust. And it's the billboard said, well, the last person leaving Seattle, please turn out the lights. And I'm driving in going, okay, I got invisibilities. I got a future. I'm going to be of service. No problem. And there wasn't. Again, I was everything. I was led to every step of the way. It was amazing. It's what I call living life on the automatic door opener of the grocery store. I just have to step up to that plate. But the job I wound up getting that is still my favorite job, no offense to all of my other coworkers and places where I got employment, but it was at a place called Harborview Medical Center. I was, um, I worked there for over 10 years on uh, critical care, which broke down to medical intensive care, coronary care, backup for surgical intensive care in the burn unit and the ER. Yeah. A lot of death and dying. Hold that thought for just a second, because this it keeps niggling in my head about... Um, so you had this near-death experience and now you have um, entities driving your car and talking to you and, and providing signs at exactly the right time. Did it take a while for you to, to trust this intuition or was it just so forceful that it, you just knew it was right? How, how did that connection go? Good question. So keep in mind, now I went to the school of social work. I, I had important jobs leading up to there. I mean, there were every, it was like a step and another step and another step. Again, I'm invited to work in this location and that location. And um, then I got my master's in social work. 
and got the job at Harborview. And uh, I to get from my car to the critical care unit, I had to go through the emergency room. And one day there was a woman that looked a lot like me on a gurney with her wrists hunkered down, two point restraints, and she looked miserable. So I just, you know, asked the resident at hand, you know, what's her deal? And, you know, he's charting as, oh, she feels like she's going in and out of her body. So we're sending her up to psych, which was lockup at her review. And oh, I boy. had been going in and out of my body. Plus I had the near-death experience. And I thought, oh dear, A, I'm not telling anyone. And B, I'm crazy. So that's how I defined it. I checked really? You self-defined as crazy? crazy? Oh. I self-diagnosed as a highly functional schizophrenic. And I was okay with that. But again, I, because it was crazy. I, there was a time when, you know, I could keep you here all day, Scott. I'm sorry, because I keep thinking of stories, but uh, I was working on the unit and um, a woman died. She was way too young in my opinion. And she had a 16 year old son in the waiting room who was utterly alone. And the doctor and I had to go out and tell him that his mom had died. And then the doctor was gonna leave and I would be there for the shock and the comfort mm -hmm. and all that. So um, in the meantime, the nurses were cleaning up her body and uh, there are curtains, there's not separate rooms on uh, that kind of intensive care, there were curtains surrounding the bed. And this young man, the 16 year old said that he, yeah, he wanted to see his mom, but not to see her body. No problem. So I walked him in to where, of course, he'd been visiting his mom for days. I uh, knew where her bed was, surrounded by a curtain. And I said, if you, you know, press your head against the curtain right there. You're next to her head. Tell her anything and everything you want her to know because hearing is the last sense to go. That's still in place, again, to the best of our medical knowledge. But I knew that his mom could hear him because I could see her standing next to him with her arm around him. Oh, my. And that's what I saw with my eyes. So if that's a highly functioning schizophrenic, sign me up. Because it allowed me to provide so much comfort. She can hear you. She's with you. I promise. Again, with such sincerity. And that's just an example. But the biggie was waiting. And that was a certain shoe on a ledge. Oh, and for the people who are watching this, this is probably the most quoted story in near-death literature, and Kimberly Clark Sharp owns it. And please tell us the shoe on the ledge story. This is like a legend in action right here. I'm very happy to because it's becoming urban legend. There's a very famous researcher from Europe who was at an IANS conference uh, 20 years ago. And I was uh, in the crowd around him just to go, I'm such a fan. 
and had a name tag on Kimberly Clark Sharp. And the shoe story is very famous. And he looked at me and picked me up and twirled me around, around, around and said, you're real, you're real, you really exist. It's like, well, yeah. So I myself became a bit of an urban legend. So here's the story from the person that found the shoe. All right. So, uh, a social worker always has many things to do because if there's a problem, get the social worker. I mean, that's, that's true in schools, hospitals, public businesses, whatever. A woman named Maria was admitted. I worked in, in during the day. She was admitted at night, unconscious, uh, cardiac arrest to the coronary care unit on the second floor of the north end of Harborview Medical Center. This facility is immense because it's a trauma center that, again, then, as now, serves one-fourth of the continental United States in terms of geography. So um, big place, busy place, lots of people dying. And by the way, I'm very, very good at my job because as it turns out, I'm not afraid of death. And so butterflies and birds would come out of my mouth and I'm going, where did I get that wisdom? I mean, I really could not identify source because I was crazy. I was schizophrenic, but dang, I was really, really good at camping down fear of death, helping people in shock and grief, at least breathe on and on. But also I had to do mundane things like, oh, find a translator for Maria because she only spoke Spanish. She had come from another part of the state, never been in Seattle. So um, the next day, uh, I went on rounds and I met her and found the translator and did the workup. She was nice, fine. And about three days into my um, relationship with her, which was, you know, superficial, professional, um, she went into cardiac arrest. I happened to be right on the unit. I saw her flatline. On, I was in front of the monitors. Well, Harborview is a teaching hospital for the University of Washington. So you don't get a doctor, a nurse, and a respiratory therapist. You get the thundering herds, you know, students, resident, interns, attendings, food service for all I know. A big crowd in her room. And I stood in the doorway and personally watched an easy resuscitation. And people, you know, she's back in normal sinus rhythm, as it's called, people went their ways, including me. A number of hours later, I was paged back at the unit. Maria was awake, agitated, couldn't find the translator. Her nurse was afraid Maria would flip back into cardiac arrest. So social worker, do something. So I had, you know, like high school Spanish, which was this side of useless but we managed to get through the story. So you're gonna hear my words, not in Espanol. But Maria managed to communicate that during cardiac arrest, she could look down on the room and she pointed where in the ceiling uh, and could tell me what people were doing. 
which did not impress me because Ashley Scott, Maria was talking to the worst person in a way, as well as the best person. Worse than that, I was discounting my own experience to such a complete degree that I had to discount hers. So oh, I thought, I and okay. yeah, I mean, it was just like, she fell into that category. I was beyond skeptical. I uh, could explain it to myself and that, again, hearing the last sense to go, she probably heard what was going on. And, you know, just uh, wasn't lying, just somehow filling in the blanks. It's actually called confabulation. There's a term for this. Unintentional creation of what seemed to be facts. Fine. Then she said like that, without any sense of movement, she found herself outside of the building above the emergency room entrance, which she also described in terms of the one-way curvature of the driveway, the doors opening automatically. She viewed a lot of activity. And again, I thought, big deal. Her room happens to be above the emergency room entrance. So probably somebody you know, pushed her bed against the window and she happened to look down. Stupid conclusion on my part. No one would disconnect a critically ill person to like clean. These are big rooms. I mean, no one would be moving her bed by the window. Also, there's a roof. All ER entrances have a roof because there's weather. And so she could not from her position have it in body looked at the room, but then she wasn't done. She then said uh, that she was distracted again by something, it was a tennis shoe. She didn't know where in the hospital it was, but it was on a ledge, maybe three or four stories above the ground. She had no point of reference, but she wanted the shoe. And that's why she was agitated. So it wasn't an unpleasant agitation. It was like, oh my gosh, I saw a shoe and all these other things when I was dead, basically. And so it was left to me to find the Galdang shoe. I went outside, that was a bust. I was too close to the building, couldn't see the ledges. And what is a shoe doing on a ledge anyway? She was very specific though. It was large, dark blue, a uh, little toe area scruffed up. And there was a white lace that went under the heel. Should I get it mixed up with any other large dark blue scruffed up tennis shoes. <laughs> We're looking for the one with the white lace under the heel. Got it. So Got it. like, oh, the Kim, I started on the wrong side of the building, but um, Harborview's windows in the center part of the building where I finally worked my way to, nothing on the north end. And that's where her, that's where her body was. That's where the unit was, nothing there. Uh, I went up to the third floor, nothing on the north end, started in the center again, nothing, nothing, nothing. And the windows, I was about to say, went almost down to the floor. So this wasn't a hard look. It's just a big place. And unless there was uh, a cart in front of a window holding towels and bedpans or whatever, I could just walk by and go, no shoot, no shoot. Working my around to the west side of the building, there was a uh, a room where uh, there was a, you know, a stack of towels and stuff. So I walked in and looked down and then everything changed, Scott. As 
as much as my near-death experience changed everything, this humble shoe, this humble shoe, it was just a shoe. But what was it doing there? It was on a ledge. It was dark blue. It was a man's shoe. Uh, there was a lace and I couldn't look outside, but there was a nib of a lace coming under. I couldn't see anything on that scruffed up little toe. And in that moment, I learned what it's like to be in so much shock that one cannot support one's body weight. Because, I don't know, I felt faint. It, even remembering this, it was so shocking that it, it's kind of dizzying even in the telling. It was so amazing. Anyway, I my legs gave out and I sort of fell forward and bonked my head against the glass window and it stayed there. And out loud, I said, this happened to me. And I remember my breath momentarily fogging up the glass because my mouth was that close to it. And no drama. I just reached out and um, picked up the shoe. There is another, a bestseller book written decades ago about this by an author that never checked anything with me. And by the way, in After the Light, I even hired a private detective to chase down all these stories of people because I wanted to get it right. Because this story that I'm telling you, again, horse's mouth, has been told wrong a number of times. Um, even in my presence at an IONS conference, I heard a presenter talk about the black shoe on a roof found by a doctor. It's like, no, that never happened, sir. It was me. And all heads of the ballroom turned to me. Anyway, things like that. But um, uh, mainly, I mentioned an author, this author, and it was a bestseller book. I want to clarify now, with no apologies to this author, if you read this story, he had me crawling out of the window onto the ledge on hands and knees and scooting down to the corner of the building and then making a left turn on the ledge and then finding the shoe and then scooting back. And that is nothing I would do. I mean, I did zip line once in Alaska, but I, and also it rains in Seattle and it was an April where it really rains. None of that happened. No drama other than the fact that the shoe was there, dramatic enough. I just reached it. And then I don't know what I was thinking, went back down to Maria with the shoe behind my back. So what does the inside look like? Well, she didn't have a clue. I don't know why he did that. I had the shoe. Then I revealed it. And then my Spanish bloomed forth. It was Viva Zapata. <laughs> well, it was great joy. And the reason that shoe became so well known was the nursing staff. Oh, and that's an interesting that twist. It was a very highly witnessed and documented resuscitation by someone who was flatlining with her eyes closed. I mean, so that shoe sat there and I, I have to tell people, I, I still do teach. I, I'm uh, an instructor at a place called Highline uh, College. And Thursday, I will be sharing this story with a bunch of students. And um, uh, the point being that it's astounding. It's just astounding 
there have been other stories of people who have found inexplicably placed or lost objects. We have a fellow who comes to Seattle Ions, a Boeing engineer, and he dropped dead at work and came out of body and found a particular instrument uh, up high that was lost and was able to identify. And there's Pam Reynolds, anyone listening, look up the story of Pam Reynolds. There are other stories, but nothing as famous as the shoe, again, because it was so well documented. And again, because it just spread among the nurses. But the value of that shoe in my own life is that suddenly I wasn't crazy. It's like, oh, wait oh. a minute. I can reevaluate my mental status. I knew that Maria was not crazy. I had done her workup, sane as they come. So I wasn't crazy. And then in academics, I was ambitious. You know, I wanted to get up to a certain professor level of status. And I needed to do research and everything had bored me until then. And now I thought I got a gig. So thereafter, I this is April of 77. Um, I began to ask all the patients who have been resuscitated, what do you remember about your resuscitation? And I was getting nothing until June. And a 16 year old had been admitted overdose, uh, so much in danger, they didn't have time to get her to Children's Hospital. So she was on the unit and unusual in and of itself. We just don't get kids. And um, I asked her, you know, I'm boring myself now. Like, okay, you know, what do you remember, if anything, about when you were resuscitated? I mean, I asked so many patients this question. And she said, oh, I was with Oompa. And off she went. And it, it was like, wait, what? <laughs> And it turns out here was a suicide attempt so sincere that she wound up at the trauma center, the adult trauma center, talking about Oompa. Anyway, so if anyone knows someone who has attempted suicide or has committed suicide, hellfire is not waiting in my expansive, extensive experience talking with people who have had a near-death experience. I've heard one suicide attempt with that element, but it was so brief, um, immediately pulled out, immediately. Oh, yeah, I uh, found so, exactly the same thing talking yeah, to people yeah. who tried it. It's, it's not like it. that. If God is all love and loves us as I am loved and you are loved and everybody on the planet is loved. Why would in a moment of tremendous despair in broken bones, because the chemical blast of people that depressed make it truly not their fault? I mean, really, why would a loving God go, okay, eternity in hell? It's like, no. So this girl found herself with Umpa. Umpa was her grandpa who was deceased, had died before she could pronounce it grandpa, and she was being held in her his arms. And he was like in a oh, chair. Lovely. Comforting her. And she loved him and he loved her. And then he said, like a good grandpa, you gotta go back. 
her name was Patty. She's one of two people in the book I never found, but I always mentioned her. I changed her name by two letters, but it's Patty. Um, anyway, he said, you gotta go back. And she did, and that's how we met. And, uh, you know, a suicide attempt is horrible. Don't do it. Um, she did recover physically, but then she had to go to inpatient, back to that inpatient ward. Uh, she did recover. I followed her the whole time. And, and by the way, same with Maria. Maria wasn't like a shot in the dark. Maria was in the hospital for three weeks in intensive care, a long mm -hmm. time. And that shoe became the shroud of Turin, by the way. Again, the nursing staff. And so people were coming all over the place. And Maria was very happy to show them the shoe. And when she discharged, she gave me the shoe. And then I followed her in outpatient in cardiology for three years. So it's not like a story. It was a relationship. Same with Patty. Patty recovered and was really wonderful at joining me at school assemblies in the King County area, which contains Seattle, talking to her own peers about don't hurt yourself. And here's what happened to me and don't do it. And she did that very successfully until she just simply aged out. Yeah. So she did something with that. And off we went. So sp speaking of being loved, um, this has been a lovely time together. We have are bumping right up against our deadline here. So thank you, Kim, for being with us today. And I want to give you a little bit of time. Um, talk a little bit about Seattle Island. Give it a give it a plug, Shana, will you? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, I co-founded Seattle Islands uh, in June of uh, 1982. And it remains the, well, it's the first support group for near-death experiences in the world. There's many now. Ions.org is your source for finding out what other support groups uh, and there are other organizations, um, uh, SAI. Enderf uh, uh, is out Enderf. there. I mean, you know, it's not the only game in town, but it's a good place to start. I mean, it's, it's my homey home on earth, frankly. Anyway, uh, I can be reached through the Seattle Ions website at www.seattleions.org or through email at seattleions at yahoo.com. Thank you. Awesome. Thank and you again, Kimberly. I have a book and that is something I don't really care about making money from so go to the library it's in your local library check it out or for three bucks get it on kindle or whatever but there is that breast cancer i mentioned i had eight to ten months to live and again she lived but um i crammed as many stories in there as could fit it's heavy with stories of people that i've interviewed and along the lines of suicide or uh, just dropping dead and all that. But back to joy. 
the news is good. We are loved, even if we don't feel like it. Right? We really are. And I want to thank you, even though you're expressing gratitude to me, but thank you for giving me this audience, this platform. Um, I've had a really good time. You're a good interviewer. Thank you. And we will remember your stories for a long time. Wasn't that interview a hoot? Not only was it fun, but rich in meaning. First off, let's talk about Kimberly's near-death snit. I love that word. That spot in her story where she gets frustrated and finds herself in another location and experience. As you listen to NDE stories, listen for how often people have these snits where they are desperately seeking a different experience and insight, or frankly, they just don't like the way their experience is going and they want to negotiate another outcome. These intense feelings often lead to just the change they request. So here's the insight. Intention and emotion are the driving force of the non-physical universe. Good to know when you land there. And it works just the same way here in the physical too. So when we do affirmations, prayer, manifesting, it just takes a little longer to come to fruition here in the physical. Second interesting thing I noticed is the role of light in Kimberly's experience. She acknowledges that she hasn't found the right words to describe her interaction with the light. She's only been trying since 1970 with only partial success. It's no wonder one of the common elements of an NDE is that it's ineffable. We have no good words to describe it. So listen, beyond the words, listen to the math and music of her experience. She describes her communication as perfect. This combination of math and music and still finds great difficulty in translating those comments into English words. When Kimberly had the opportunity to speak about her experience, she used the phrase, homey home, the first words used when she was learning to speak. To return to that first phrase seems especially fitting as we all try to wrap language around this elusive experience. Third, <laughs> I love the role of signs, both literal and figurative, that guided young Kimberly to her destination in the Emerald City of Seattle. The continuing use of the Wizard of Oz metaphor as confirmation that she was on the right path is comforting, profound, and frankly, it just makes me smile. Knowing that doors will be open for us requires truthfulness to oneself and a willingness to let go. Remember her teaching moment early in the interview. Lastly, knowing that persons committing suicide or attempted suicide, that they are not condemned to eternal suffering, makes sense given the profound nature of a loving God. As we have discovered in other interviews, we are made up of the same stuff that is the loving nature of the universe. We cannot be separated from it because we are it. Therefore, when we leave our physical bodies for the last time, we are indeed coming home to what made us. Homey home. 
as Kimberly so aptly described it. If you're watching on YouTube, like, subscribe, and comment. You can find the Afterlife Files on all podcast streaming apps. Apple, Google, Spotify, all the lot. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And pay us a visit at neardeathmeditations.com. I'll repeat that, neardeathmeditations.com. There you can see our guided meditation albums and NDE courses. Bye now. See you next time. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>